0: Good evening. My name is Aaron Bastani. Welcome to this evening's edition of Tisky Sour. No, Michael Walker. I'm afraid I'm trying to replace the irreplaceable. But fear not, we have somebody equally as captivating as Mr. Walker, the one and only Ash Sarka. Ash, how are you doing?
1: Nobody's irreplaceable, and Michael, he's never coming back.
0: <laughs> well, he's working. Uh, he's working the bars in Glastonbury. Maybe you know. Maybe he'll consider a career change if he has a bit too much fun. He will be missed. So I hope that doesn't happen. We have a lot to cover this evening a range of stories. Of course, today's news coming from the United States. We'll talk about that at the end. Uh, Roe versus Wade. Six years of Brexit. Of course, it's been six years since the uh, referendum for Britain to leave the European Union. What does Nigel Farage think were the major benefits? But before we get onto all that, of course, the two by-elections overnight. Boris Johnson has suffered Two major by-election losses, one to Labour in Wakefield, the other to the Liberal Democrats in Tiverton and Huntington. Speaking in Rwanda, this was Boris Johnson's reaction to that double defeat.
2: The truly astonishing thing was we managed to win Hartlepool in in, in a very different uh, circumstances. What we need to do now is reflect on where voters are. And what they're. I think what they're basically feeling is that you know we came through covid well we took a lot of the right decisions there but when i'm facing pressures on the cost of the living we're seeing uh, spikes in, in in fuel prices uh, energy costs uh, food costs that that's hitting people uh, we've got under we've got to we got to recognize that uh, there is more that we've uh, got to do and uh, we certainly will we will keep going addressing the concerns of people until we get through this patch
0: And in his resignation letter, Tory party chair Oliver Dowden said this. Yesterday's parliamentary by-elections are the latest in a run of very poor results for our party. Our supporters are distressed and disappointed by recent events, and I share their feelings. We cannot carry on with business as usual. Somebody must take responsibility, and I have concluded that in these circumstances, it would not be right for me to remain in office. Rare specter of a senior Tory falling on their sword. And this is what former Tory leader and former Home Secretary Michael Howard had to say to the BBC.
3: I'm afraid I've very reluctantly come to the conclusion that he shouldn't. His, his biggest asset has always been his ability to win votes. But I, I'm afraid yesterday's results make it clear that he no longer has that ability And the best person in the Conservative Party to judge the mood, both of the party and of the electorate, is its chairman. I have enormous respect for Oliver Dowden, and the implications of his resignation letter are, I think, very clear. Like him, I remain completely loyal to the Conservative Party, but I think the party, and even more importantly, the country, would now be better off under new leadership. I always thought that uh, the culture of number 10 at the time of uh, recent events was unacceptable. Um, And indeed, I think the prime minister himself belatedly recognized that. But that culture came from the top, and the only person who was responsible for it was the prime minister. Now, that view was my view, and I'm only one person. But what I think yesterday makes clear is that my view is shared by very large numbers of people in Yorkshire and in Devon, places so different, that I think they can reasonably be regarded as representative of the country as a whole. So I think that yesterday, the electorate delivered its verdict. And as Oliver Dowden has said, it can't continue as business as usual.
0: Ash, it can't continue as business as usual. This is a former Tory leader, a former Home Secretary. And alongside the party chair, is it the last days of Rome for Boris Johnson as Tory leader?
1: Well, I think that Boris Johnson is somebody who is running out of options. Now, I'm not somebody to talk about kind of immovable laws of politics, that something gets so bad that someone is automatically forced out of office. Realistically, there are very few mechanisms for removing a prime minister. The Conservative Party had one roll of the dice with a no confidence vote. Of course, Boris Johnson emerged from that victorious, but with a historically large rebellion against him. Now, any other prime minister probably would have resigned pretty quickly after that. But Boris Johnson has said to himself, well, I'm not any other prime minister. The next option is, of course, you've got a motion put by Parliament to call an early general election. Now, there doesn't seem to be a sense that enough conservative MPs will go for it in order to make it actually happen. So your third option is that Boris Johnson takes a roll of the dice, that maybe he calls an early general election, whether that's now or sometime in October. So it's essentially saying to his party, look, get your shit together. If I'm going down, I'm taking all of you with me. You would have perhaps expected that following Oliver Dowden's resignation. And I think something that's important to say is that Oliver Dowden, he might not be a kind of you know, Nadine dory style kamikaze pilot, but he is really a Johnson loyalist. He was a backer of Boris Johnson's leadership, and he's been a member of the government ever since that time. You would have expected his resignation to trigger an avalanche of choreographed resignations. Now, that isn't something which has happened today, which tells us that either the would-be leadership contenders are keeping their powder dry. They think now is not the right time to make a move. Maybe they don't want to be the Conservative leader who takes the party into the next general election. Or maybe there's some rather successful horse trading going on behind the scenes. That's something which we won't know for certain, but I'm interested in seeing what pops up in the Sunday papers.
0: The first two by-elections we'll be looking at was in Devon, Tiverton and Huntington. The by-election there triggered, of course, by the resignation of Tory Neil Parish. Parish resigned for a very strange reason. He was caught watching porn in the House of Commons. Here's the by-election results. You can see the Liberal Democrats on 53%, the Conservatives on 38%, Labour on four, Greens on two, Reform Party on one percent. And look at that increase in the vote share for the Liberal Democrats, up 38%. After 2019, the Tory majority was 24,000. This was not in any way a marginal seat. And it's the biggest numerical majority turned over in a by-election ever, ever. So we can't just put this down to uh, regular sort of midterm blues for the incumbent government. This was Britain's newest Liberal Democrat MP, Richard Ford.
4: Our country is crying out for leadership. I served as an officer in the British Army for 10 years, Mr Johnson. And I can tell you that leadership means acting with decency and integrity. It means keeping your word. It means setting an example and putting other people's needs before your own. I served alongside friends who personified these values and laid down their lives in the service of their country. And yet your behaviour, Mr Johnson, makes a mockery of leadership. By any measure you are unfit to lead. The people of Tiverton and Honiton have told you tonight that enough is enough. They demand a change. The only decent course of action left open to you is to heed their call and resign.
0: So is the Liberal Democrat victory here really about the Liberal Democrats or is it simply a protest vote? against a deeply unpopular prime minister. Liberal Democrat leader Ed Davies spoke to Good Morning Britain earlier today.
2: A year ago, we beat them in Buckinghamshire, then we beat them in North Shropshire, now we beat them East Devon, and then in the local election just last month, uh, Liberal Democrats beat the Conservatives in Cumbria, in Somerset, in Wimbledon, in Woking. You know, There's this a theme here, isn't there? People turning to the Liberal Democrats because they like what we're saying, both they like our local champions, our councillors who are standing and got elected in May, they like the, our candidates we're putting up for parliamentary elections. They're voting for our, to have a local champion who will speak for their community, and they're voting for our positive policies. Of course, they're also saying that Boris Johnson isn't fit to be our Prime Minister. Um, and I'm making it clear that um, um, I think the people of Tiverton-Hoddleton spoke for the British people. They want Boris Johnson to go. Okay. And Boris Johnson should go. And the Conservative MP should wake up and get rid of him.
0: As somebody else who had a few choice words for the Prime Minister, was the former Conservative MP for the constituency, Neil Parish.
3: They've had a good working relationship with him. He has many good qualities. The trouble is he can't just keep living in a parallel universe. Um, There has to be reality.
0: Ash, there has to be reality. It's coming from all sides. His uh, former colleague, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, his own former party leader. I know I've asked you this question already, but what does it say about the Tory party? And perhaps with an eye to the next general election, what does it say about the Liberal Democrats? Can they take... Seats like this from the Tories across particularly the south of England. We saw it in Shropshire, Chesham and Amersham. Now we're seeing it in Teverton and Huntington.
1: OK, so let's start with some of the things which are very specific to this Conservative government. You look at the by-elections which were called. They were entirely self-inflicted bullets to the feet. In Wakefield, you had a by-election called because the Tory MP turned out to be a literal paedophile And Tiverton and Huntington had to be called because Neil Parrish couldn't stop looking at the crop destroyers while in the chamber. So this is not a usual kind of by-election, all right? You have uniquely, I guess, uniquely tarnished um, local MPs. So that's a kind of unique context. What's worrying for the Conservatives is just how fragile their electoral coalition is. What 2019 was supposed to be, and this was the entire vote leave plan, was that it would embed the Brexit realignment in Parliament. So the Conservative coalition would be an amalgamation of the true blue Tory voting shires, many of which did vote leave, and leave voting seats in the North and the Midlands, more commonly known then as Red Wall seats, which they had won. Now, what last night's results show us is that something like Wakefield, which was a seat that flipped in 2019, is very, very difficult for the Conservatives to hold on to. Yes, some of that is to do with, as I just said, the incumbent having been a literal sex offender. But those are the kinds of seats which you would want a Conservative party to at least try and hold on to, right? Those are the battlegrounds. So that's worrying thing number one. And then I think you said, Aaron, earlier this morning when I was perusing your Twitter, which is what I always do first thing in the morning. One mm-hmm. of the things that you said is that if a seat like Tiverton and Huntington, 24,000 conservative majority, leave voting seat, it's been a conservative constituency since the boundaries were drawn in 1997. If that's gone, then what is a safe seat? There's a huge question mark hanging over the general election. Now, of course, people vote differently in by-elections to the way that they do in general elections. They see it as a way to give incumbent parties a bloody nose. They don't necessarily see it as, who do I want to be, prime minister. But none of these, you know, even if you include the caveats and take them seriously, are good news for Boris Johnson. There was something kind of sweet about Ed Davey saying, well, all of this is happening because people like the Liberal Democrats. It's certainly true that in Chesham and Amersham, they ran a highly local campaign. They really just ran on a big old NIMBY platform. They won on that basis. I don't think that the same applies to Tiverton and Huntington. So the idea that everyone's flocking to the Liberal Democrats because they really like what they're saying. I couldn't name a single Ed Davey policy, Aaron. Could you? I'm A genuine question. Name one Ed Davey policy right now, gun to head.
0: Christ, I didn't realise it was, it was that serious, Ash. No, I, I can't think but like, of any. If,
1: if you ca- can't and I can't, and it's our job to know about things that are going on in politics, right? And If we can't name a single one, then I think it's safe to say that maybe people are being attracted to the Liberal Democrats because of how they feel about the state of Westminster rather than how they feel about Ed Davey.
0: To go back to what you were saying a moment ago, Ash, in terms of this seat and how important it is, Tiverton and Hannity in 2015, the Tory vote was twice the size of the Liberal Democrats, Labour and the Greens combined, twice the size of all of them combined, and UKIP was second. So to go from that situation where you have this one party constituency and second is a party to their right, where about 25%, I think, of the constituencies over 65, overwhelmingly white, 57, 58% voted Leave. If this kind of seat is not safe for the Conservatives at the next general election, then nowhere is safe. And of course, like you said, the caveats are it's a by-election. This really should not be happening. You also spoke on the on the on the caliber of party candidates coming from the Conservative Party in regards to Mr. Parish and the former Wakefield. MP will talk about Wakefield more in a moment. But it seems that things haven't changed. The Tory candidate in Tiverton and Huntington was Helen Hereford, who seemed especially poor
5: with regards to um, our prime minister i believe that he's honest in his relation to the pledges that he makes the pledges to support us during the covid i wouldn't have a business and i certainly wouldn't have a house if it hadn't have been for the grants that were were administered we wouldn't be open now if it hadn't been for the rollout of our vaccinations not once not twice but three times We were the first to do so. The pledges to support us with a 37 billion plan to help us with the cost of living. Once again, the government is supporting us. And also the support and leadership he has shown with Putin's war against Ukraine. And there is a statement from the president of the Ukraine, from Ukraine, who 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 encourages and is thankful that we still have that Prime Minister. It is very easy to stand on the sidelines and attack and be aggressive. And what I'm hearing on the doorsteps is that people are fed up of it. They are sick to death of it. And what they want to hear, what they want to hear, is how we are going to support it with the cost of living, which is affecting us all. It's affecting us from petrol in our cars to how we're going to heat. I have. And how we are going to eat our, heat our homes? I think the question—I
6: think to be fair—the question was about the prime minister's character. Do you have any concerns about his character?
5: I don't have concerns that his pledges are
0: honest. Yikes! Yikes! That was uh, that was pretty brutal. Ash, is there any precedent for this kind of collapse that we're now seeing from the Conservatives? I know we've had this debate before. I personally think it's quite unprecedented.
1: I think is unprecedented. And I think that is a reflection of the systemic rot within our political system. So lots and lots of parts of our democracy simply aren't functioning, whether that's the checks and balances which exist within the parliamentary system. They're clearly not fit for purpose. If you're running on a good chap model of the Constitution, where a good chap would do the right thing and resign, and then you don't have a good chap and that falls apart, you're obviously a bit fucked. I also think that a lot of the volatility that we're seeing is really a result of, I guess, capriciousness within the media classes. Boris Johnson is a figment of the media's creation largely. (laughs) They helped catapult him to prominence. And then when it came down to the essential choice between him and Jeremy Corbyn, The press did their best to make Jeremy Corbyn, who, sure, not perfect, but certainly was not the Beelzebub that people would have you believe, that he's a racist and a friend to terrorists and all the rest of it, right? All those things were total smears and fabrications. But they did that in order to, you know, put a thumb on the scales and produce an outcome, which meant that, you know, equitable redistribution of wealth in this country was kicked into the long grass. And yes, you had this sex crazed golden retriever being given the keys to number 10, but I guess that's just the price you've got to pay. Now you've got the same people who helped put Boris Johnson in the position where he is today, whether by unfairly maligning the opposition or by glossing over his own sins now going, Oh my God. Have you noticed he's not really fit for power? Who could have foreseen? So I think that the volatility that we're seeing is a reflection. Of system-wide dysfunction, as well as sort of specific things going on within this iteration of the Conservative Party.
0: And if you want to see dysfunction even more painful than what we saw with Herford a moment ago, was her response to losing the election. This story appeared in the Telegraph. It is a funny story, but a bit of light relief. She barricaded herself into a room to avoid the cameras. Helen Herford's disappearing act at Tiverton and Hunstanton by-election will likely prove the most memorable moment. Of a lackluster campaign. And we even have the video. Brace yourselves.
5: How are you feeling? No, Lib Dems have declared. Oh, have they? They have.
0: They've declared oh. victory and the polls are stacking up. Okay. It's not working. We're
5: not doing, what
1: right, oh, we're Keep going around this. this week. Keep oh, yeah.
3: going. Right.
0: Welcome to Lord's Meadow, the tiverton Honiton by-election, where the Conservative candidate has locked herself in the room where media interviews are carried out. She arrived and went straight in. And we haven't heard from her since. Not the most honourable or pleasant way to finish an election campaign. I suspect we won't be hearing from that Tory candidate anytime soon, if again. Tiverton and Huntington wasn't the only by-election that we saw last night. Another was in Wakefield in Yorkshire, historically a Labour seat which was won by the Tories in 2019. But the by-election there was triggered after Tory Imran Ahmed Khan was jailed for molesting a 15-year-old boy. Labour's share of the vote was at 48%, the Tories at 30%, Independents at 8%, Yorkshire Party, I believe, at 4%, the Greens on 2 And you can see there the net change in vote share. It's more a story of Tory collapse than Labour improvement, though it's important to say that that's a a big gain for Labour. They're up 8%. It should be noted that their share of the vote was actually, I think, 47.8%, was below their 2017 vote share. But the majority was significantly bigger because the Tories have taken something of a hiding. Although it should be said, a Tory seat in a by-election... When you're in government, getting 30% is not a dreadful, dreadful result. Their majority in 2019 was 3,000 on a 47% vote share. So, you know, it's a Labour win, but they should really be winning these kinds of seats. The new Labour MP is Simon Lightwood. He was previously an aide to former Wakefield MP Mary Cray, who was a Remainer. And of course, Wakefield voted 66% to leave. Lightwood took aim at the Prime Minister in his victory speech.
4: Tonight, the people of Wakefield have spoken on behalf of the British people. They have said unreservedly, Boris Johnson, your contempt for this country is no longer tolerated. Your government government has no ideas, no plan to address the big issues facing our country. It's not
6: acceptable.
0: And Labour leader Keir Starmer had this to say about the Conservatives.
6: Absolutely imploding. Um, They know they're out of ideas and they're out of touch. If they had any decency, they'd get out of the way for the next Labour government. Because what happened here in Wakefield was people exercising their judgment on this Conservative government and voting no confidence. But for me and the Labour Party, this is very important because for two years uh, we've been turning our party around uh, and we were able to show the voters in Wakefield that we are a confident party, we're a united party and that we are laser-like focused on the issues that affect working people in Wakefield. And that's why they put their faith in Simon, that's why they put their faith in the Labour Party.
0: Ash, Keir Starmer taking that vote, which was a Labour victory. As a vote of confidence in him and a potential Labour government going forward. How should Labour see this? Because it is it is important to say that Labour haven't done very well in by-elections in the last 15 years. I think this is the first by-election they've actually you know, won where they've taken the seat from another party, I think since 2012, something like that. So obviously that should be celebrated on their side. But at the same time, it's more a story of Tory collapse than really any confidence in Labour as the next government, isn't it?
1: Well, look, he's just got a bit of a case of Ed Davey disease, where if you're being asked about whether or not this is an endorsement of your leadership personally, of course, the only answer you can give is yes. If Wakefield is the kind of seat that the Conservatives need to hold on to in order to embed the vote leave electoral realignment, it is absolutely a must win seat for Labour in terms of if they're going to have any route back to a government, whether that's as an outright majority or indeed in some kind of uh, coalitional confidence and supply arrangement. And the reason why it's so important for Labour is, of course, it's a red wall seat. That's something that we all know. But compared to other red wall seats, it is a bit younger and it is a hell of a lot more diverse. So if Labour were unable to take back a seat like Wakefield in a by-election, they would be in very, very big trouble indeed. Um, The good news for Keir Starmer is that while this might not necessarily be a huge endorsement of his policy platform, because he doesn't really have one, this might actually be an endorsement of his overall strategy. Because sure, you didn't have a hugely boosted turnout for Labour, this looks like a depressed Tory vote staying at home, but it does actually lend a little bit of weight to the idea that if you've got a Conservative government that is just busily and loudly shitting the bed, you don't really have to do much of anything in order to capitalize on the fact that they've alienated so much of the country. Now, the positives, not from my perspective politically, but from Keir Starmer's perspective politically, the positives of that is that if you don't really rock the boat too much, you help create an environment where you can have lots of disaffected Tory voters going to parties like the Lib Dems in some of those rural shire seats that form the bedrock of any conservative majority. Of course, the downside to that is if you don't put enough distance between yourself and an you know, a- an unpopular conservative leader, is that, well, what if they just then replace them with a more popular one? You don't actually have a policy platform that you can appeal to and say, hey, this is the big difference between us and them. Of course, the other problem for Keir Starmer is that he's made personality and integrity the big dividing line between himself and Boris Johnson. Now, while in some ways Boris Johnson is a totally unique specimen of pathological liar, hitherto unseen by the human race, Keir Starmer isn't above telling the old porcupines when he thinks it's politically convenient. He ran an incredibly deceptive leadership campaign in order to pitch himself as a left-wing candidate to the membership and then immediately abandoned all of those promises. And this is, of course... Trivial compared to the kind of egregious pattern of misconduct in, pa- in public office that you see amongst the Conservative Party. But the problem with Beergate is that it creates this impression of, oh, well, they're all just the same. So. I think that while Wakefield is an endorsement of the strategy of don't say that much, don't take a stand on divisive issues, merely capitalise on the Conservatives doing badly, yes, Wakefield as a by-election is certainly an endorsement of that. It's still a very risky strategy overall because if the Conservatives do manage to change tag, or indeed, if your personality dividing line suddenly comes a cropper, you've got nothing else to fall back on.
0: Yeah, I think that's such an astute response. The, the, the bet here is that It's a low turnout election in 2023-2024. The Lib Dems nibble, um, the Tories in the South and and Labour get back some of that red wall. And you're absolutely right, Ash. I I can see how you crawl to a small majority or a coalition of some kind. But there's lots of moving parts there and things can go wrong. And, And the presumption is not a big, big win. Still a long way to go. So let's see. Piers Morgan versus Mick Lynch. This week, Mick Lynch has been owning the media establishment. And he's not done yet.
7: I want you to confirm or deny if this is your Facebook page. It's a picture yeah, of it's Can a you picture see the picture of the hood from Thunderbirds. Can you see the likeness? Well, I'm just wondering where the comparison goes, because he was obviously <laughs> an evil criminal terrorist mastermind uh, described as the world's most dangerous man who really utter, the, is utter, that utter level carnage you're pitching this on the public. Is that
6: the level you're pitching this at, Piers? That is a joke amongst me and my friends, and you can see the likeness, if you like. So you're He's not denying man that you are eyebrows. comparing
7: yourself to the hood?
6: I'm not comparing myself to anyone.
7: I'm me. You've literally made your profile picture the hood. And I'm simply well, saying, I was so a massive, if it was a bunch I was of a Thunderbird fan, and the hood it, was it, the most was a dangerous, flowers, would I evil be a person in the world.
6: He's the most evil puppet made out of vinyl in the world. Is that the level your journalism's at these days? Well, I simply asked you if that was you and your Facebook page. Well, do, you, do, do you think I look like the most evil person in the world, Piers? Well, I,
7: now you're asking me to, to answer a difficult question, Mick. I don't know you that well. All well, I'm I don't saying think is, I think saying
6: I'm that a working class bloke who's leading a trade union in a dispute over jobs, if you, pay, and conditions. I understand. If you don't
7: want to be compared to the hood, probably better not to have the hood as your well, profile
6: picture. I think
7: it's quite funny. So do I. But well, I also like. Go. As I was Wait, a Thunderbird. At the level fan, we're at,
6: though, don't you want to talk about the issues rather than a little vinyl poem? Simply, simply trying to get, get inside the
7: mindset of the man about to wreak havoc on the country. It makes uh, me laugh honestly, that you have the hood as your profile pic, because that's a man who wreaked havoc on the
6: world. Well, it makes me laugh that your level of journalism has descended so far that you can't think of any other question rather than think about put, the, the I didn't put
7: that picture on your profile p-
6: page. Yeah, but you've chosen to spend two or three minutes of this interview talking about an irrelevance. Because you seem so but irritated by, by the going. comparison.
7: Well, because you seem so irritated by the comparison to the I'm hood. I'm not irritated at all. I'm completely You seem very irritated. Well, I'm not. You're not? This is your non-irritated phase, is it? <laughs> what point are you trying to prove, Piers? I mean, I'm mean, i not, sure I'm trying, wind I'm me not up, trying to prove anything. Is you put it on your Facebook page. I'm simply asking, oh. it's an odd choice for a union boss okay. who's about but to go on to ask a, a series about of strikes to have Piers, that it is as your choice. Say-
0: it's important to say that Piers Morgan actually posted that clip himself as if he's proud of it. Uh, he's been talking about all the facts and figures and the, you know, the, the massive reach it's had on social media peers it's because people are laughing at you. It's not because it's a gotcha of Mick Lynch. On ITV, Lynch took Tory MP Robert Jenrick to task. You've lost 20% of the passengers on the railway
4: since
6: COVID. I haven't lost That's not COVID the fault did. of you and the, COVID the COVID railway. But we need to encourage those people back. The worst way in which you can do that is by alienating your customers by going on strike and making their lives much more difficult. The worst way you could do it is insist that the fares go up by RPI, ripping off the commuters, but you won't give the the workers RPI. The fares go up by RPI every year, the retail price index. That's the government regulations. Last year, profits were made by the train operators. £500 million out of that subsidy you gave went to those companies. First group and go-ahead, who we're negotiating with, are both subject to takeovers from private private equity companies. They're going to be worth billions because they know that okay. you're going to keep siphoning money from the public purse into private okay. sector operators. Well, just they, as you're doing make, in make, health, what's education, actually happened in the care. last two years is, in effect, a large swade the rails have
0: been. Uh, actually, I've got to in, so the for idea for, that I've this got is to bring in, siphoning for, profits to the but private but sector It's made a hundred million pound of okay. profit. Okay. Important to say as well that the rail operators that uh, Mick Lynch referred to go ahead and first group, the CEOs of these organizations are on 550,000, 600,000 pounds a year. That's before bonuses. In each organization, you're talking dozens of people on absolute megabucks. But of course, nobody in the media wants to talk about that. If we're talking about paying conditions, it's about people on around 30,000 pounds a year. The average RMT member has a salary of 31,000 and apparently that's too much. But Mick Lynch wasn't finished. Then there was BBC Question Time where he took on the transport minister, Rachel McLean. The companies have told me face-to-face they could achieve
6: a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies. Yes, so why don't you negotiate
1: with because that Because they basis? won't write it
6: down on a piece of paper and give it to us as the commitment. It is. They got,
1: it is here. No, it's
6: not. It I is. thought you That's didn't interfere in these negotiations, I've, I've but have got a let- network, rail got the network rail letter.
1: I've got the network rail letter here. That
6: does not give us... Okay, none of us can read it. So, so do you want to read out the relevant bit, Rachel?
1: W- w- will you read out where it well, says...
6: It doesn't say
5: well, look, someone read it out, for heaven's sake. Rachel, you've got it. Will you read out the relevant bit?
1: There, we, when the changes are implemented, our need for maintenance and work yeah. delivery staff is likely to reduce. We will need to commence formal redundancy consultation yeah. with is, our trade that unions. Is I that, no, that, it's, it's not.
3: Trillion.
1: Again, while we do not have to agree those redundancy with our trade unions, we would much prefer to implement them with your agreement and cooperation. We very much hope and anticipate that sufficient employees will volunteer for redundancy to avoid the need to make Anyone compulsory redundancy? So That's, That's your not guaranteed.
6: There's a guarantee of no compulsory redundancy. It's very
1: clear. Does it
6: say th- no compulsory redundancy?
1: No, of course it doesn't, because well, as the lady me it said, you just no, no organisation can give that guarantee.
6: But, but you can see here
1: in black and white, it says they want to do this with your agreement, and but if, it you, say if what you want to negotiate said, said. with them, you can That's protect the jobs of that gentleman over there. It does
6: what you said. It said.
1: Well, okay. what I, said said. I think we're going round, round
0: and round, round, round here. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen. But left no, right. hang on really. Fiona Bruce being a, a clapping seal rather than actually trying to get to the facts of who was lying and who wasn't. I guess it was the uh, Tory minister, so of course she wouldn't. Uh, then Mick Lynch gave a brilliant account of public sector wage stagnation on that same show.
6: There are a whole strata of people in this country that have been subjected to this form of austerity for an extended period. Uh, what is it? Nearly twelve years now that have had pay suppressed, and that's what it's about. It's about making workers cheaper for, for the government, and that can only go on for so long. And it causes disruption in the society. It causes people to be alienated from what they're doing. And, and when the must... government
0: says, if 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 they keep, I'm going to say this for you, Rachel, since you're sitting quite quiet as a mouse. If the government says, if if we give large um, increases in, in mm. public sector. Uh, uh, wages that would drive inflation up
6: well inflation's gone up and the problem is that prices are chasing wages uh, wages are chasing prices not the other way around we've had a lot of people whether in the private sector or the public sector all in small small businesses who've not had a rise for a very very long time and they're starting to really feel the pinch we've got a society where people in full-time employment are having to take state benefits and some of them are having to go to food banks that cannot continue we've got care workers and other workers, not just nurses, and everybody talks about nurses, but all sorts of people in the public sector, in the councils, who I think are completely undervalued, and they've, they're starting to think, I need to stand up and get some dignity at work so I can get a better standard of living. And that means some of us that are doing better may have to give up some of what we have and transfer it to them through some kind of government mechanism, because it's not right. That means progressive tax
0: so that people earn a decent living and have a decent living to live on. Fiona Bruce literally said out loud that she was going to interfere, make the government's case for them, because the government minister wasn't doing a sufficiently good job. She cut off Mick Lynch to make the government's points for them. Not long after that, there was this audience member who had a a pretty strange contribution, in all honesty.
1: You absolutely have to change with the, what you experience economically. So do you think the RMT is taking the wrong approach? Yes. And look what happened to the dinosaurs. Well, oh, they were around
0: for a very long time. But <laughs>
1: They're not with us now, though, are they?
0: Million years. Ash, why do people hate dinosaurs so much? They were around for so long. Kids love them. It's very dangerous. Why do people hate dinosaurs so much?
1: I think Hyacinth bucket makes a really good point, which is that unless the RMT accepts a real terms wage cut for its members, worse conditions and compulsory redundancies, the entirety of the human race will be wiped out by an asteroid. It's just basic economics.
0: Do you think that point of view, that sort of paranoiac Hyacinth bouquet sort of face that she was making, I want to speak to your manager, you know, you can imagine her go, Mr. Rex, with your small arms, I want to speak to your manager. (laughs) <laughs> how 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 common is that, do you think, in, in British sort of civil society? I mean, because obviously those are the, the those are the archetypes that we think of when we think of the sort of completely crazed Tory voter who won't see sense or listen to rational arguments. Do you think that she's reflecting a a real tendency in, in public life? Or do you think this is particularly amplified by shows like BBC Question Time?
1: Well, look, you do come across people in life who appear to be the distillation of some kind of archetype, right? We all do that and we're like, oh my God, did I just meet a person or a character? And in her case, she is the quintessential curtain twitcher, hyacinth bucket, the kernel of the cul-de-sac. She's the kind of person where if you kick a football over into a garden, you're getting it back with a fork dabbed through it, all right? She is the distillation of something that we all recognize. But the thing about question time audience selection, and I'm saying this as someone who's done... Three question times is that you come across people, a disproportionate number of that exact kind of person. And for some reason, you often find them in the front row. So I remember doing a question time and there was a woman in the front row. She had this very, very chunky fringe and she started going on and on and on about how we couldn't let in any more migrants because the country was literally sinking like sinking under the weight of too many people, which is obviously totally bananas. And then after I'd had this interaction with her, it came to my attention that she was a former member of the National Front, that she's somebody who had been on, you know, free Tommy Robinson marches. And so then you've got to ask yourself how representative of not just the country as a whole, but the constituency that the show is being filmed in is that point of view. So there's something going on, I think, in terms of the question time audience selection, which skews what you're seeing. Now, Stratford upon Avon, it's a very Tory seat. I don't necessarily expect it to reflect the same range of opinion as you would find, I don't know, in Tottenham or, you know, up in Manchester or somewhere in Liverpool. And that's totally legitimate. Those voices deserve an airing too. The fact is, is that these are unusually very, very popular strikes. You know, 58% of people polled said that they thought that the strikers were justified. And that is within an incredibly hostile media environment. So I think if in a week where, you know, you see Mick Lynch giving it the comms equivalent of Neo in the Matrix, just taking on presenter after presenter, batting away stupid question after stupid question. And then he's in a really hostile environment where seemingly nobody likes him. That isn't representative of the country as a whole. And we've got to ask ourselves about the role of things like question time in terms of skewing where we think public opinion is rather than accurately reflecting it.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important. I think, for instance, about the Green Party. They've quadrupled, I think, their number of councillors in the last three, four years. They do have a member of parliament. Compare that to the coverage that UKIP was getting way before Brexit referendum. You can kind of understand it, of course, in 2016. But the Green Party now has more councillors than UKIP ever had. And yeah, I don't think they've had an appearance on BBC Question Time for like three years, three and a half years. Unbelievable. And I made a comment about the production company that's responsible for BBC Question Time on Twitter. It's a very right wing company. I mean, the TV industry is, is packed with reactionary right wing people. But that particular production company, I think, has uh, quite unique problems. So I'll maybe one day make a documentary about it. You know, the truth behind BBC Question Time. Before we go to our final two stories, they're a bit lighter than what we've talked about so far. Although you might disagree, one's about Brexit, that always gets the juices flowing. I want to highlight our fundraiser. We started. This month, more or less, was 6,000 supporters here at our Media, our target was 10,000. So far, we are at 9,000. A big part of getting to 10,000 supporters is, of course, expanding our coverage. That's never been more important in this year of all years, with, of course, a cost of living crisis increasingly strident, we hope, trade unions taking industrial action. We want to be part of a different kind of media covering those stories in a fair, accurate, and ultimately solidaristic way. We want those strikes to succeed. We're on the side of working people, unlike legacy media. If you want to support media that does that, go to navaramedia.com forward slash support. We know there is a cost of living crisis. One pound a month is all we're asking for. One pound, three pound, five pound a month, whatever you can afford, it makes the world of difference. This is a great little story. It's been six years since the European Union referendum and Britain voted to leave. As a result, Nigel Farage was invited onto the BBC's podcast, Newscast, to discuss it.
2: What has been the best thing about Brexit so far, then? Oh, Britain standing in the world, which is entirely different to what it was before. Exactly. I mean, Give us an example. Oh, I think the AUKUS deal was a very good example. Right. You know, Just the, the the US, remind US, our list, Which is where we go to Australia. Australia had a long-term submarine deal. With the french for completely outdated diesel technology um as eu members we wouldn't have been allowed to get in the way of that but we've come together with the americans and we're now going to provide nuclear submarines for the australians and that matters because a diesel sub has to surface once every 24 hours a nuclear sub can stay submerged for six months at a time so in terms of counter chinese communist party intelligence that's a big plus that what was else? one example.
0: I'm just wondering, uh, though, how, yeah. when you say we wouldn't have been able to replace the French as their suppliers if, we were being, if we'd been in the EU, how would that
2: have, well, what the would point, have stopped us? Well, the point about the EU foreign policy that we were signed up to was that we had to act in a spirit of mutual cooperation. So cutting out the French would absolutely well, not. Well, no, have, but it was the Australians and, deciding to have a different contractual relationship. So then, Australia is not in the EU. So well,
0: because, they could do whatever they wanted. Because, Australia could do what they wanted.
2: Well, and maybe America could have done that deal. We couldn't have done that deal without being in direct breach of our promises. This is incredible for me, Ash.
0: Six years after the Brexit referendum, the number one benefit of Brexit so far, from Nigel Farage, no less. This is not some you know Remainer or Gary Lineker. It's from Nigel Farage saying the number one benefit is the fact that Australia is going to get nuclear submarines, not diesel ones and that that means they can pin back the Chinese Communist Party. I don't remember seeing that on the side of a bus.
1: Well, that's because the NHS isn't getting a £350 million increase in funding. I mean, you know, to quote the great Jessica Lange, it's not going to be a £350 million NHS funding, you stupid slut. Like, you know, that was a lie. Now, I don't believe in reopening and re-litigating the 2016 referendum or the 2019 election that was contested on those grounds. Okay, it's done. It's over. We're going to have to forge our future outside of the EU. And there are some ways in which, in terms of building a socialist government, that's a good thing. There are some ways in terms of the room that creates for a kind of shock doctrine capitalism in this country. It's a really bad thing. But what I think is pretty revealing is that when you talk to some of the most vociferous and ardent voices on the right... Who had backed Brexit from the very start, like Nigel Farage or indeed Jacob Rees Mogg. And they're being called upon to discuss the tangible benefits to everyday ordinary people. The best they can come up with is that Australia's got some new submarines. And in Jacob Rees Mogg's case today, banging on and on about weird little numbers in a tunnel somewhere. So it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's not based on things like, okay, well, actually everybody's wages went up because. While in some sectors, yes, wages went up a bit in order to try and attract labour because migrant labour fell in those areas, that then gets wiped out by the cost of living crisis, the fact that everything costs more. You know, when it comes to being able to do things like, you know, spend more to stimulate the economy, well, that's not happening. And you look at other European countries, particularly when it comes to control of their energy sector, we're way behind in all of those regards. So it's not a surprise to me that Nigel Farage is talking absolute bollocks, because actually the things he was saying and promising people about leaving the EU were bollocks, actually.
0: The funny one for me is when people say, well, look, we can't be in the single market. People like Nigel Farage and and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, people like Dan Hannan, when they were asked, well, who would you like to be? They say, well, Norway. Norway, you know, very affluent country, prosperous country, very successful, very open, economically dynamic, very democratic country. They're not in the European Union. Uh, And like you say, Ash, I mean, I find this just so remarkable. The biggest constitutional shift in our lifetimes was driven by people who didn't actually really know what benefits it would offer. I get the philosophical argument about self-government sovereignty. I get that. I, I understand it. I think it's very hard to achieve in the 21st century. But the actual policy arguments they were making were incredibly hollow. Um, And I find it pretty amazing that this has somehow been center stage in in British public debate and and politics for for six years. I wonder, I wonder at any point will they ever go back on it? You know, when is it going to be enough for Nigel Farage? We were, you know, there was the surrender treaty. We're being let down. And even now, once Brexit's happened, absolutely everything he wanted, every single box has been ticked. Still, Brexit's been a letdown. We've been failed by the elites. Even when he said absolutely everything he could imagine, I suspect it never ends with Nigel Farage. Our last story this evening is Roe versus Wade. Of course, this has been in the pipes for a while, but today the US Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That's the historic ruling that gave American women the constitutional right to an abortion for nearly 50 years. In a different case today, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, the court effectively withdrew the federal rights to abortion. The Supreme Court is currently stacked with conservatives, that's very important to say, and six of them ruled to repeal Roe versus Wade with three liberals dissenting. Now, the decision as to whether a woman can or cannot have an abortion will be made at the state level, making access to abortion a matter of geographical luck or access to resources to to travel. Ash, this is a huge story. I mean, for obvious reasons. I mean, it's the reproductive rights of more than 150 million Americans. But this feels like the quintessential story about American collapse, I guess. The idea of America as this free democratic society, which was exporting rights around the world including gender rights apparently with afghanistan and yet they're now depriving women at home of the right to have an abortion what's your take
1: six individuals just robbed hundreds of millions of people of one of the most fundamental rights there is which is the right to bodily autonomy and This is something which I sometimes find difficult to explain to men, but reproductive autonomy, having access to contraception and having access to abortion, as a woman, that underpins almost every other right that you have. I would say that having control over if and when to have a child That's at the heart of my ability to live in the way that I want, to have the job that I want, to work the way that I want, and to love the way that I want. I don't have to live my life thinking, okay, well, if I want to enjoy having sex with somebody, I've got to do so full in the knowledge that if I get pregnant, there's nothing I can do about that. Or I will have to take my life into my own hands by accessing an unsafe and illegal termination of that pregnancy so abortion is at the heart of nearly every right a woman can have can enjoy and that 's what fundamentally this is about the Christian right in the United States have been very very open and transparent in a way as soon as roe v Wade was secured in the Supreme Court the right-wing said, we are going to do everything in our power to reverse it. So that meant having a court which has been shaped by corruption. You had a stolen presidential election, Bush v. Gore, which meant that Bush's Supreme Court nominations really shouldn't have happened had it not been the decision of effectively, you know, his brother, that could help him secure the White House. Um, Subsequently after that, you've got Obama's nomination Being, you know, stymied. And then you've got Trump who gets three picks. So this has been a long game and a strategic game by the right to try and just have as many anti choices in the Supreme Court as possible. And I think as soon as you had Kavanaugh and you had Amy Coney Barrett, the writing was really on the wall for Roe v. Wade, even though. In their confirmation hearings, they said that they regarded it as settled law, they wouldn't be touching it. This has been coming for a really long time, which makes the actions of the Democrats even more unforgivable. I really use that word with all of the seriousness and the gravitas that it can possibly convey. Because when he was a candidate in 2007, Barack Obama promised Planned Parenthood, that codifying Roe versus Wade, by making it law, by passing it in Congress with the Freedom of Choice Act, that that would be his first priority as US president. And of course, he wins the Democrats' control, Congress and the Senate. Does he do that? No, he doesn't. In fact, he says, well, actually, abortion rights aren't really the first priority. It's settled. The next thing, which is utterly unforgivable, unfortunately, is the actions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, because she had pancreatic cancer. She knew that she was very, very ill. And instead of retiring under an Obama presidency, which would have meant that he got another pick at a Supreme Court justice, she held off. And why? It's because she wanted the symbolism of Hillary Clinton, who was supposedly going to be the first woman president of the United States to pick her successor. So it was vanity. Sheer vanity, which meant that you had Ruth Bader Ginsburg being replaced by somebody who would not defend Roe v. Wade, who had indeed, you know, overturned that decision. And then you've got the third thing, which still endures to this day, which is when you have, you know, really the Congress and the Senate on a knife said, you still have establishment Democrats supporting anti-choice Democrat candidates at the expense of progressive candidates because they are more in line with corporate interests. So now, if Biden wanted to codify Roe v. Wade, he would have to, you know, get through the fact that you've got Senators Sinema and uh, Manchin saying, well, we're not going to oppose the filibuster. With the filibuster in place, of course, it's going to be really difficult to codify Roe v. Wade. And you've still got the presence of anti-choice Democrats in Congress and in the Senate who are being backed by Nancy Pelosi. And and that's even, even, you know, entertaining the delusion that they might be strategic enough to try and pass, you know, a freedom of choice act. Because actually, the best that I've seen them come out with since the Supreme Court have announced that they're overturning Roe v. Wade is Nancy Pelosi sending out an email asking everyone for $15 and reading out a fucking poem. Now, what's that gonna mean to a woman who is trapped by circumstance because either she's poor or she's, you know, got a regular immigration status, you know, she's a woman of color, or she's in an abusive situation. Tell that to a woman who's trapped in that situation, who can't get an abortion, who can't exercise that very basic element of control over our own body, don't worry, I'm crowdfunding $15 and I've got a lovely poem to read you. It is a fucking joke because it may be the rights war on women but has been aided and abetted by the complacency and incompetence of establishment Democrats every step of the way.
0: Unbelievable, Ash. I think you've just nailed it so, so well. Fortunately, we do have a clip of um, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, who I should say, is eight, she's 82 years old. And she's worth $200 million. That's not being ageist. I I just feel that that's a really important job. And being that wealthy and, and that mature in age probably is something of a hindrance, just my opinion. Here's that video from Nancy Pelosi and her immediate response to probably the most regressive step in American politics in my lifetime.
5: I am personally overwhelmed by this decision. From time to time, I quote... This poem by Ehud Manor, he's an Israeli poet. I met his wife when I've been in Israel. He says, I have no other country, even though my land is burning. Only a word in Hebrew penetrates my veins, my soul with an aching body and with a hungry heart. Here is my home. I will not be silent for my country has changed her face. Country has changed her face. I shall not give up on her. I shall remind her and sing into her ears until she opens her eyes. Clearly, we hope that the Supreme Court would open
0: its eyes. Very strange hope. You don't need to hope. You've got the president and you've got Congress, but you're still not doing anything. Ash, I know you sort of touched upon it a moment ago, but this level of complicity from centrist Democrats, fundamentally, clearly they're not as responsible for what's happening as the right, the conservative movement, the conservative legal movement. They've had their eyes pinned on this really since Roe versus Wade you know, for approximately 50 years. This has been their big goal, even when people were saying, well, Trump isn't very religious to the evangelical right. Why would you back him? Well, because he wants to get conservative justices onto the Supreme Court. Actually, that long term perspective in terms of what they wanted, it turns out, regarding their political values, that was broadly a a correct way to do things. They had a better theory of change than the Democrats'. Do you think anything will change for the better around this kind of stuff in the US, as long as you have these kinds of people at the heart of the Democratic Party?
1: As long as people like Nancy Pelosi are calling the shots, absolutely not. And I think that there has been something very cynical about how the Democrats have framed and presented the Republican attacks on Roe v. Wade. They've used it essentially as a fundraising top line. They've said, okay, give us your donations, make sure you vote for us because the Republicans are coming from Roe v. Wade. We're the only ones who can protect it. And then while in power, when they've had the opportunity to protect Roe v. Wade by codifying it or even trying to get it protected within the constitution as an amendment itself, they have declined to do that the reason why they've declined to do it is because then as soon as you lose your bluff, you've got no more power. Republicans have gone, well, we're just going to do the thing that we've always said we're going to do. And you're not going to be able to do anything about it because you've squandered every opportunity that you've had. So you're right to say that this has happened because of the complicity of establishment Democrats. And see these crocodile tears from Nancy Pelosi. I actually find it like deeply, deeply offensive. And I know it's rare to like, see me get upset on Tisky. Like normally I'm having a really, you know, fun time discussing politics with you and Michael. But the reason why I take it so personally is because it is, I think that when you are a woman, whether that's, you know, being a cisgender woman, or, you know, if you were assigned female at birth and you are a trans man or you're non-binary, if you are somebody who has the, ability to get pregnant the thought of that turning into a form of reproductive captivity is terrifying it is totally terrifying it is the most fundamental erosion of choice that i could even begin to describe and to think that a country that we thought had settled this issue has just ripped that choice from hundreds of millions of people i find like personally very very upsetting i am gutted for women in the United States right now, particularly those who don't have access to travel, don't have money, are in really circumstances that make them vulnerable, and they're not going to be able to travel across state lines. And another thing to point out, actually, is that there are some states which are reportedly considering making it a criminal offence to travel across state lines to procure an abortion. So even this thing of, okay, well, the privilege will always be able to get a safe abortion out of state that might not even be the case either it is such an assault on fundamental human dignity i can't even begin to describe it
0: yeah a really remarkable story a really really remarkable story and i think sometimes you know we we, we grew up you and i ash people our age i know i'm older than you sorry i shouldn't say that should i but you know there, there's people of a certain age we were told that the, the world gets better and it's been clear for a long time that unless you fight for it things Things don't. And I think the really gutting thing with people like the Democratic Party, to a lesser extent, obviously, because we've got nothing like this in the UK, the, the Labour Party, the centrists and the Labour Party, is that they aren't fighting for the things they profess to care about as much as the other side. And that has to change. Ash, thank you very much for joining me on Tiski Sour this evening. Hope you have a good weekend.
1: I hope you do as well. I am gonna go get blind drunk so I can forget how angry I'm at Nancy Pelosi. That's my plan.
0: And thanks for everyone watching this evening. This has been Tiski Sour. My name's Aram Bastani. Have a good evening and good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to
1: navarra support.